Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, you're listening to the latest episode of Talking France. This week, we'll be discussing bullfighting. Yes, bullfighting exists in France, but perhaps not for much longer. You've all heard of Bordeaux and Burgundy, but this week really belongs to Beaujolais wine. We'll find out more about the French wine region that is often disparaged, but really shouldn't be. We'll hear why France is facing a dangerous moment with fuel prices set to soar once again and look at whether 72.2 million euros could bring an end to the dangerous and deadly channel migrant crossings. We'll also hear about an almighty row involving the man some call France's Rupert Murdoch and learn some French insults that will definitely land you in hot water. Do you live on the coast of France? If so, stay tuned as we look at which parts of the country might one day be underwater. I'm your host, Ben McPartland. Our usual guest, Emma Pearson, is away this week, but I'll be joined by the local France's journalists, Jen Mansfield and James Harrington, our politics expert, John Litchfield, and special guest, Caroline Connor. Jen, before we bring in our wine expert, just tell us why Thursday is a special day in France's cultural calendar. Yeah, so today, November 17th, is Beaujolais Nouveau Day, which is quite the tradition and it's celebrated every third Thursday of November. And it's celebrated not only in eastern France, where Beaujolais is located, but also across the country and even the world. It marks the annual release of the Beaujolais Nouveau, or the new Beaujolais Vintage, which is a red wine from the Beaujolais region just south of Burgundy. Every year, there's a huge festival in Beaujeu, which is the capital of the region, and people come from far and wide to see the bells ring in, the new vintage at midnight, and to kick off four days of partying and celebration. Now, to find out more about Beaujolais Nouveau and why it's reputed to give you a really bad hangover, I turn to Lyon-based wine expert Caroline Connor, who runs Lyon Wine Tastings and the Terroir Podcast. So Beaujolais is the region just north of Lyon and just south of Burgundy. Burgundy being one of the most famous wine regions, if not the most famous wine region in the world and the most expensive, Beaujolais has always been in the shadow of Burgundy. So Beaujolais is famous for its red wine. They make red wine from the Gamay grape. It's the less prestigious sort of little brother of Burgundy. And as such, it's it's never had the kind of power and prestige of Burgundy, but it did have a moment. It really had its moment in the sun in sort of the 80s because of the Beaujolais Nouveau craze. Okay, tell me about this craze that started in the 80s. This is obviously what we're celebrating on Thursday this week, this Beaujolais Nouveau Day. But you're telling me it was bigger in the 80s. It was a big deal in the 80s. And anyone who was, you know, drinking in the 80s will remember it uh, probably with a sort of a little bit of regret from the epic hangover that it may have given you at that time. But for the younger listeners, it was a really big deal in the 80s. Basically, what Beaujolais Nouveau is, is it is this light, juicy red wine made from Gamay. And it's made in a style of winemaking called semi-carbonic maceration, which to not get too technical about it, is a really specific fermentation technique where the grapes ferment within their skins. So what that results in is a very light wine that's ready very quickly. Most red wine takes a year to make, and it takes at least a year to get to you. These wines are ready within a couple months. So these are grapes that were harvested just this September. 
and even August in some cases. And so that's really unusual for a red wine. And that's why it's Nouveau. Is this why people talk about getting a headache and having a really bad hangover after Beaujolais Nouveau? Is this because it's so quick to be made? No, it's not about the technique. It's honestly because most of it is mass produced and not particularly high quality, certainly historically. And, and still today, the majority of it, I will be honest, is mass produced. It's not that great. Any mass produced wine from anywhere is probably going to give you a hangover. And it's cheap. It's cheap and mass produced. Like it's, you know, it's not... Like, we're not talking about Domaine Romani Conti, you know, super expensive burgundies. We're not talking about even a, a 20 euro bottle of wine. We're talking about four euros here. Which is why it's so popular, which is why many bars kind of celebrate this in France and around the world, of course. Let's go back to the 70s. Uh, in the 70s, a man named George Duboeuf, who you'll still see his name on a ton of labels, he was a producer who basically was a very good marketer and made Beaujolais Nouveau a big party, particularly in London at first, then in Tokyo, in Australia, in America, in Paris as well. And it became this big worldwide sensation. They were shipping this stuff around the world in bond and they made a ton of it. And it really was pretty cheap, but it was fun. It was a party. By the 90s, you know, that really had worn off. The, the luster of that had worn off. The 80s, people loved it. And then people really got sick of it in the 90s. In 2001, the Beaujolais were still producing so much of it that they actually had to dump 100 million cases to basically be sold as, you know, vinegar or alcohol because the government said, you know, this stuff literally has no value. You're making so much of it and the market doesn't want it anymore. So it is something that is not that popular anymore. And it's not all cheap and mass produced. There is good Beaujolais Nouveau that is made by good producers. So if you are in, say, Paris or, you know, here in Lyon, I know I'm going to go out to a restaurant on Thursday. I'm going to celebrate Beaujolais Nouveau and I'm going to drink good Beaujolais Nouveau made by a good small producer. Finally, it's not just Beaujolais Nouveau, is it, that's made in this region. You can go to a supermarket and find older good Beaujolais wines. Let's big up Beaujolais a little bit, shall we? <laughs> Well, I love Beaujolais. It's my region of choice. Obviously, I live, you know, I can get in my car and be in Beaujolais in 40 minutes right now. So Beaujolais has a lot of different tiers of quality. The Nouveau is really fun and it accounts, I think it's about 20% of all production. But most of that is going to come out of the really big producers. Uh, the rest of Beaujolais is <laughs> really different. We actually have a lot of different tiers of quality and I highly encourage everybody to give Beaujolais a chance. But go to a good caviste go to a good restaurant, you know, don't go to the grocery store and buy the cheapest one. Spend 20 euros on some Beaujolais and you'll find some excellent value as well. Thank you, Caroline. Now let's move from Beaujolais to other parts of France as we do in this podcast to find out where else has been in the news. Jen, particularly, we've been looking at France's coastline or certain parts of France's coastline this week. Why? So we're talking about France's coastline, which is unfortunately not immune to sea level rise, because according to the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, a lot of it could be underwater. So in the best case scenario, the ocean will rise by about 28 centimeters by the year 2100. But a lot of experts think that the more likely outcome is that it will rise by 63 centimeters to one meter assuming we fail to bring down our greenhouse gas emissions. So in response to that, this American NGO, Climate Central, made an interactive map that shows us what a world with one meter of sea level rise would look like. So we here at The Local, we focused in on France, of course, and we picked four places uh, that look like they're going to be hit the hardest. So the first is in the north coast of France, particularly the area from Calais to Dunkirk. That covers a pretty significant distance, actually. It's about 45 kilometers across. 
And the water would cover some more inland parts too. So on the map, which you can check out on our website, you'll see uh, this red area and that's supposed to represent the rising tides. Uh, and you'll see those rising tides also going about 15 to 20 kilometers inland as well. And the next part of France is La Vendée, which is known for its coastline and beaches. And as we mentioned in previous podcasts, it's Emma's favorite coastline in France. And unfortunately, a lot of where we might enjoy vacationing could be impacted. So one beach that I zoomed in on was Plage des Becs, and that could be completely underwater by the year 2100 if waters go up by one meter. Yes, Jen, I was also looking at these maps that, that we produced. There's an article on our website if you want to know more about these parts of France affected. But one of the really impressive maps or, or frightening maps was around the Bordeaux and Gironde department in the southwest. Yeah, so as we continue traveling south, we get to Bordeaux and the Gironde department. And we noticed that a lot of the coastline is going to be eaten away by sea level rise, according to these predictions by experts. There's one place in Gironde in particular that has been kind of a symbol for sea level rise for years, and it's called Le Signal. It's an apartment complex that was built in the year 1967. And at the time, it was over 200 meters from the shore. But now, in 2022, it's only... 10 meters from the water. So naturally it had to close down. But Le Signal is going to definitely be underwater by the year 2100 with just one meter of sea level rise that these climate experts are predicting. And then finally, we're going to go down towards the Mediterranean. And you might be surprised to hear that Marseille and Nice have been somewhat spared. But sadly, Montpellier and the coastline near it has not. Climate experts have warned that one area to the east of the city, Les Saintes-Marie-de-la-Mer, would become a peninsula over time if the waters keep rising at that current pace. Frightening stuff indeed. Thanks for that, Jen. Now, each week on Talking France, we like to look at some of the French personalities that have been in the headlines this week. Now, there's been an almighty row in France in recent days that started with a discussion on France's most popular chat show called Touche pas mon poste, TP, MP, which quickly flared up into a slanging match between the host and a left-wing MP. That, that host hurled foul-mouthed insults, of which we'll hear more about shortly, at the MP, which prompted shock, anger, scores of complaints, an investigation by France's media regulator, anger in Parliament, a legal complaint by the MP, and a semi-apology by the TV host. But it's the man at the centre of the row who is quite interesting to know more about. That's Vincent Bolloré. Jen, before we run through some of those insults, uh, who is Vincent Bolloré? First of all, why is he in the news? So this all began when, like you mentioned, a member of France's left-wing party, La France Insoumise, went on the TV show Touche pas à mon poste. So like you were mentioning, Ben, it's more of a chat show and the host, Cyril Aounouna uh, likes to use his platform to host fiery debates, uh, but things got a little bit too heated this time. Uh, so the two of them were discussing a migrant rescue ship, and the politician blamed the situation on the richest people in France and named Vincent Bolloré, who is just known as Bolloré in France. Uh, but the thing is, Bolloré owns the channel C8 that the chat show is broadcasted on, and he happens to be a friend of the host. So that led to quite a few insults being fired back and forth, which we're going to get into shortly. But first, a little bit more on who Bolloré is. So, Bolloré is a French billionaire and media mogul worth about 9 billion euros. Bolloré's media empire covers radio, TV, newspapers, and publishing, and he's particularly well-known because he owns the channels Canal Plus and CNews, which the latter is known for being rather right-wing. It's sometimes compared to Fox News. And Bolloré has been accused in the past of interfering with the network's editorial decisions, which is why some call him the French Rupert Murdoch. So 
A little bit of background into Borele. He was born the heir to his family's company, but the story goes that he turned a small paper mill in Brittany into a financial and media empire. While it is true that he bought the family paper mill, Borele made most of his fortune via transport and logistics, uh, specifically by owning several dozens of ports in West Africa, although he did end up being investigated for corruption in his methods of winning those port contracts and was hit with a pretty steep fine. Uh, he's also connected to a Luxembourgish company that runs palm oil and rubber plantations across Africa and Asia, and that company has been accused of grabbing land and displacing local communities. Jen, when it comes to his media empire in France, Bolloré has been called a super influencer by the French press. Yeah, and his holdings have actually come under investigation by the French Senate over media concentration in France and its quote-unquote impact on democracy. He's, like we mentioned before, also received several accusations of meddling in editorial affairs for the media conglomerates that he's the head of. And apparently, Bolloré chose far-right Eric Zemmour to specifically come on to see news as a regular panelist. Uh, on a personal level, Bolloré is famous also for being close friends with the former French president Nicolas Sarkozy, and he even lent him his yacht in 2007. And then bringing back the uh, Murdoch comparison, he has four children, and they're likely to be the ones to inherit his empire. Now, someone who knows the story of Vincent Bolloré very well is our political expert, John Litchfield, who joins us on the line. I asked John just why Bolloré is such a controversial figure in France. It's quite new, this sort of interest in Bolloré. I mean, he's been a very wealthy man and a very powerful man for a long time. France is a strange country, you know. People say it's difficult to get rich in France, but it's very easy, it seems, to get very, very rich or stay very, very rich. And, and there are, you know, four or five for families or dynasties who have enormous wealth and power in France, and, and Bolloré is one of them. But it's quite recent for he's, him to get involved in politics and the media, and to what extent he's driven by politics in, in buying up things like acquiring control over things like Canal Plus and, and Say News is, is what the dispute is about. I think, yes, he is apparently um, someone of extreme right-wing views. He is also a, a fundamentalist Catholic who believes in the old forms of Catholicism that have been abolished even by the Catholic Church or reduced by the Catholic Church. And I think that is that is what drives him. And he definitely made an attempt to erect Eric Zemmour as a, as a serious political candidate and, and succeeded for a while. But you have to say he's not been successful, really, in imposing his political view on France. Zemmour fell by the wayside. So as for being a a French Trump or a French Murdoch, I think, yes, maybe he, he kind of would like to himself be seen in that way. But so far, he hasn't been very successful. John, we both appear to have met Bolloré on the same day when he when they launched the electric car sharing scheme, Autolib in Paris, which has since disappeared. It was a bit of a disaster. What did you make of him when you met him briefly? It was strange. You know, it was like meeting a, a you know, rather quiet, shy, provincial businessman, which is, of course, what, what he is in his background. Not someone with great charisma, quite a slight sort of figure physically. And that was, I think, 11 years ago that Bolloré launched that, but people weren't talking of him then as any kind of very political or threatening figure. It's quite recent that he seems to have possibly also it coincides with him handing over the, nominally anyway, the, the keys of the different parts of his empire to his sons, and he's therefore taken up politics and religious politics as, as, as a kind of very serious hobby since then. 
Jen, we promised listeners we'd run through this barrage of insults directed from the TV ho towards the left-wing MP, which caused such a uproar in France. Now, we like to learn French on this podcast. These words, however, are not really ones our listeners should use. We hope they don't need to use them. But everyone loves learning an insult, Jen. The first one was, toi, t'es une merde. Pretty simple. Yeah, uh, you're a... Yeah, we don't need to go anywhere else with that one. You're a shit. The next one was one I hear quite a lot, actually, in France. Abruti. Yeah, that means idiot. Okay, and he also called him a, a bouffon. Yeah, this is a jester or, or a, a buffoon. clown. Or a buffoon, yeah. <laughs> okay, and finally, toca. Ah, this one's fun. This means an incompetent person, but it's actually also used to describe racehorses that have no chance of winning their race. Jen, have you ever insulted anyone in French? No, I don't think so. Honestly, when I get upset, my first language that I jump to is English. So even when I'm biking and somebody cuts me off, I swear at them in English rather than Yeah, French. it's true. I'm the same. I normally revert to English insults if I'm ever, uh, if I ever in need. Although I did accidentally insult someone in this office, actually. When I came in one morning, I think it was a young stagiaire, and she walked towards me. And I, said, I went to say salut, and I got mixed up with hello, and I ended up saying salaud which is a pretty uh, serious insult in French. I'll let our listeners find out what that one is, but they don't really yeah. want to be using it. Salo is not a word you want to be saying not to, to anyone, <laughs> even in a mistake. Thanks, Jeff. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Now, what have we been talking about in the news in France? This month, lawmakers in the French Parliament will make another attempt, the third, in fact, to ban something that many people might be surprised to hear even takes place in the country. Yes, it's bullfighting. The blood sport is synonymous with Spain, but an estimated 1,000 bulls are killed a year in French arenas. I spoke to James Harrington, who's based down in the southwestern city of Toulouse, much closer to bullfighting country than us up here in Paris, where you'd have no idea it takes place at all. James, animal rights groups have long campaigned that this ritual should be banned. But what is the legal situation regarding bullfighting in France? It's already banned in most of France. It has been for many, many years. But it's allowed in the south of the country because it's regarded as a, a cultural tradition. It's a fantastically nebulous phrase that appears to trump many other concerns. It takes place in places like Bayonne, which it prides itself on being the oldest bullfighting town in France. But it also takes place in mont de marsan in the Basque Country, as well as near the Spanish border and along the Mediterranean coast in towns such as Arles, Béziers uh, and Nîmes. Okay, so, I mean, essentially in these parts, it's considered such a tradition that the law on animal cruelty doesn't really apply. 
this latest attempt that is going to be discussed in Parliament and voted on on the 24th, what are the chances of it getting through and where's it come from? I mean, it's the first time that it's due to be debated in the Assembly for many years. Environmental MPs tried to get bullfighting banned in 2013 and they failed. And they tried again in 2021 and they failed. And so far, French courts have uh, rejected lawsuits lodged by animal rights activists, uh, most recently in June 2021 in Nîmes which, uh, as we know, is one of the most famous bullfighting centres in France. According to an IFOP poll published in February, 77% of people in France want to ban bullfighting. So it seems as though it's it's a slam dunk policy. But those figures are turned on their heads in cities in the southwest of France, those with the bullfighting tradition, again, Bayonne, Mont-de-Mars, Arles, Béziers, where a poll for Sud Radio uh, in June found that 72% of inhabitants favour it. They want their traditions just left alone. They're ours, leave them alone, we're allowed to do them. But La France Insoumise MP, Emeric Caron, he's hoping for cross-party support for his bill. He's, he's long been opposed to bullfighting, we know this. And his bill could get some support from numerous MPs in Macron's party who have vo- voiced their opinion opposition to bullfighting. Government spokesman Olivier Varane has hinted that they might get a free vote on the matter. And at least one member of uh, the Le Pen, Bardella, far-right Rassemblement National has already said that he would support an end to the practice. In, in all parties, even Marine Le Pen, you know, who's a, an animal rights lover, and even in her kind of far-right party and on the left, in the centre, in Macron's party, there are splits. Now, the furious mayor of mont de Charles Dayot, has reacted. He says the MP Caron, in a very moralising tone, wants to explain to us from Paris what is good or bad in the South. Bullfighting is our identity, a living culture. Leave us alone with our traditions. And this is echoing this kind of widening rift in France between perhaps rural dwellers, you know, with deep traditions and Parisians and urban residents, you know, accused of kind of trampling on this country's heritage. Just explain to us a bit about the importance of bullfighting in the South and Southwest for those who, you know, like me, often just forget it takes place. Well, it dates back to Roman time. And the first written reference to it in France is about a bull running event in Bayonne in 1289 uh, linked to the driving of the animals through the streets to the slaughterhouse and as you said as you said earlier i think it's believed about 1000 bulls are killed in french arenas every year and watched by an estimated 2 million people it is quite popular in where it where it takes place in fact it's so popular that regional newspaper sud-west still publishes corridor results from across southern france and northern spain bullfighting events are popular from the spring in, in the spring and summer months the season begins in late april and runs into september and as well as the the spanish style corridor there are two more types of french bullfighting one is the course Londres. those use cows instead of bulls they're in an arena surrounded by teams of people whose job is to dodge and jump it each team aims to complete a set of at least 100 dodges and eight leaps in a in an event and then there's the course Camargues, I always have trouble saying that one, uh, where the goal is to snatch a rosette from the head of a young bull. Now, of course, both of these have the benefits of being non-lethal to the bull or the cow, but they're still exploiting animals for entertainment. France has once again been at the centre of the migrant crisis in Europe this week. Firstly, in the south, where a huge row flared between Paris and Rome after the Italian government refused to let a migrant rescue ship carrying over 200 people dock at one of its ports. France did eventually allow the ship to dock in Toulon, but relations between the two countries have turned sour and it's unlikely to be the end of the matter. In the north, Britain has agreed to pay France another 72.2 million euros to prevent migrant boat crossings under a new deal intended to improve cooperation between the two countries. Before we hear from John Litchfield, who's been reporting on this crisis for over 25 years, James, just run us through how France is actually going to spend this money. There's been a lot of broad strokes in the government statements about the 72.2 million that France is getting over the next 12 months, and, and actually precious little in the way of specific detail. 
Now, we do know it will increase officers on the ground who are patrolling about 150 kilometres of French coastline by about 40%. And based on current figures, that means the total number of police, customs officials and gendarmes tasked with stopping migrants making the cross-channel trip will rise to about 1,000. Whether that will have any impact it remains to be seen. Now, don't forget, it was just a year ago that the British government paid France 63 million euro to increase the number of patrols. So this 72.2 million is on top of that. We also know that it includes an agreement for extra investment in port infrastructure in France, better use of technology, uh, such up to and including drones, better coordinated information sharing, which you think would happen anyway, and efforts to offer migrants help and assistance before they actually make the dangerous crossing across one of the world's busiest shipping lanes. So a further part of the funding will be available for reception and removal centres in France for those migrants prevented from travelling onto the UK to, to further deter crossing attempts. Uh, if you listen to parts of, of the British press, you know, in the past, they kind of give the impression that the French are just kind of pocketing the money and not doing anything or very little to stop these boat crossings. But that's not the case. The French, you know, it's a very tough job and the French have been acting to, to prevent and indeed prevented a lot of crossings. Indeed so. The headline figure you'll hear in the British press is that about 40,000 people have reached the the UK. But what you don't know is that joint collaborations between the British and the French have already prevented more than 30,000 people attempting to cross the Channel since the start of the year. And that's an increase of more than 50% on the number of attempts that were stopped in 2021. Since 2018, British and French authorities have tightened security at ports and stations so that other methods of arrival, for example, those in the back of lorries or smuggled in vans, are now virtually impossible. And passport checks have also been tightened. And I'll bring in John Litchfield now, who's covered this issue for many years and been to Calais on numerous occasions. John, is there any hope of finding a solution to the crisis on the Channel Coast? Yeah, it's something I've covered for for 25 years or so. And I I used, when I was a younger man, to go up to Cali a lot and talk to migrants and and look at the situation. And, you know, I've sort of, my view of it has not really changed much over the years. Is that there there isn't a solution. There are ways of managing it more humanely. There's no solution. And in a sense, the present problem, I think, has been caused by the success of the British and French governments in blocking all other illegal ways of crossing the Channel and of blocking by the British, of blocking any legal ways of people seeking asylum in Britain. So it's created these or helped create these enormous gangs of people traffickers who now have a business opportunity. The only way you can now illegally cross to Britain is by this extremely dangerous method of small of small boats. And to stop that, I think, you know, a number of things need to be done. I, th- I think it can't be stopped, but it can be eased. And the deal this week, I think, does one or two sensible things um, in terms of cooperation between Britain and France, which haven't been done before. But the, the key to it, I think, should be that Britain should allow, once migrants have come into France and say they don't want to stay in France, they want to come to Britain, they should vet those and say, you know, look at them and say which asylum seekers have a credible claim to asylum. Uh, and then they should remain in France until their claim is agreed or not. Anyone who tries to cross without making that claim, or if they are rejected in that claim, could, should then be sent back home or sent back to France. That may seem rather cruel, but you, you know, you know, I feel that all sides are right and all sides are wrong in this. I can understand why people leave home and seek a better life, and I can understand why countries feel they need to control their borders. This situation will continue. It's not going to change cooperation between European countries, humane cooperation between European countries to crack down on on the criminal uh, gangs that organise this, but also help migrants who deserve to be helped 
is the only way forward. But that kind of cooperation is going to be hard to achieve, I think. Finally, Jen, you've been looking into what's actually happened to the 234 migrants who are on the ocean Viking ship. What's happened to them? So the French Interior Ministry announced that it was going to deport 44 of the 234 migrants that were rescued in the Mediterranean back to their countries of origin. Uh, About two-thirds of them are going to be welcomed by other European countries, including Germany, Norway, Portugal, and Ireland. And the rest will be able to seek asylum in France, which basically means they'll be interviewed by officials and they'll have to await the French administrative response, which could take many months to come. Asylum seekers in France can be offered housing pretty much anywhere in France. It's actually something that they have a right to, but there is a chronic shortage. So sometimes they end up unexpectedly in very rural areas or waiting very long periods of time. One example that made headlines in 2019 was this tiny village in Alsace called Ferret with less than 800 inhabitants, and they ended up welcoming 80 asylum seekers. Uh, In terms of their rights, asylum seekers are supposed to be given access to French social security, so health insurance, a monthly stipend, and a bank account and their children have the right to attend public schools. Uh, And then learning French is the next crucial step after housing. So when they sign the integration and welcome contract, they're given access to free French language training for up to a year. And basically the goal with that is to make people sufficient enough in French to be able to get by with everyday life. Interesting. Thanks, Jen. And if you want to know more about France and its role in this recent crisis, there's plenty of articles on our website, thelocal.fr, including John Litzfield's latest column on the subject. Now, as ever on Talking France, we like to look at some questions that are really important to our readers. And one of them has been for the last few months now, fuel prices. Now, fuel prices are set to soar once again in France, which is worrying both for motorists and for politicians who are running the country. Jen, bring us up to date on what's happening. So on Wednesday, fuel prices went up in France after the government decreased a fuel subsidy that has been in place nationwide. If you've been driving in France in recent months, you've been probably benefiting from this remise à la pompe, as they say in French and perhaps without even realizing it because it was applied directly at the pump. Since September, the discount has been in place and it's been 30 cents off from the normal per liter price. But starting on Wednesday, that dropped down to 10 cents off per liter and it's going to stay that way until the end of December, at which point it's going to be done away with and replaced by quote-unquote targeted measures that the government is planning on announcing in coming weeks. Uh, On top of that, the gas and oil company Total Energy is also dropping the discount that they've been giving drivers at their state so previously that was 20 cents off the liter, and that's going to go down to 10 cents off the liter. So all of that to say, motorists in France are probably going to start noticing a bit of a heftier fuel bill. And everyone is clearly up to date with what's happening. We've seen kind of runs on petrol stations this week, Jen, in the run-up to the cut in the subsidy. Some petrol stations have once again run out of fuel. It's a very fraught situation once again for those who depend on cars, uh, often those who are obviously living in rural France. I turned again to John Litchfield to find out his opinion, just what might happen in the future as fuel prices look set to soar again. Yeah, I think it is a dangerous moment. Um, We are just over four years after the Gilets Jaunes movement began with protest um, against, um, well, not even high fuel prices, but the threat of higher fuel prices at that point. I think in some ways the government finds itself a victim of its success in a way because it has reduced the price of, of fuel by public subsidy for a long time now, since the spring. 
and it can't afford to do so anymore. And it's a, a smaller subsidy has just come into effect, so it's still being reduced a bit. But that is now going to be phased out at the end of the year, and there's supposed to be a new system in which people who really depend on their cars get some kind of help from the government, but not everyone. I think in the meantime, there is a danger that there's going to be uh, people seeing that a, liter, a price of fuel is going over two litres, um, two euros a litre again, which seems to be psychologically the sort of dangerous level for the government. There could well be a lot of uh, provincial and rural anger. I think, you know, I've said for a while that I think we are heading for a socially rather difficult and troubled new year and, and winter. And I think all these things are coming together, possibly also with the, with the pension reform plan to make things very, very difficult for the government. And I, I think at the moment, there's no sign of any organised protests, but these things tend to come out of not nowhere, but come up very quickly, like a sort of squall. And I think we could see we could see a lot of problems in the weeks ahead. Now that brings us to the end of this week's episode of Talking France. Thanks to you all for listening, and we'll be back with more French news and talking points next week. Hope you have a good week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.